Now, our scripture reading is taken from Acts chapter 20, verse 31 to 35, and this is found in page 930 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take one as a gift from us. Acts chapter 20, verse 31 to 35. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks so much, Doug. Um, Doug looks like a pro up here. It's because he is. Uh, Doug was a pastor for many years and is always such an encouragement to me. So, Doug, we're so glad that you and your family are with us here uh, at Christ Community. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the, the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus. Thanks so much for coming this morning, for being with us. We're delighted that you're here, and hopefully uh, you feel uh, welcome uh, in this place. And I know if you're newer to church, or it's your first time in church, or first time back to church in a long time, it's not easy uh, to walk into a new church. So thanks for doing that this morning, if, if you're first time and newer to church. We're really glad. hope you feel that uh, the hospitality, the welcome of Christ uh, is in this is in this place. Well, as we begin, and we do this each week, I uh, want to begin our time in prayer, asking God to help us understand his word. We worship and serve a God who gets things done by speaking. He creates a world, our world, through speaking. He promises his people through speech. And so we want to ask now that God would speak to us afresh through his word today. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you get things done with words, um, and we're thankful that Jesus, the ultimate, the living word, um, has come. And I pray that today as we look at your written word that we would see Jesus in it and that your spirit would make these words alive in each one of our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the end of that passage that we heard read ends with the words, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And when we hear those words, it's tough to actually believe them, though, isn't it? And, and I think if they came from anyone other than Paul quoting Jesus, uh, who's Paul's the one speaking here, I, I think we'd probably just dismiss them pretty quickly. Because I mean, trying to explain that concept to a kid around Christmas time is, is tough, right? That, that actually giving presents is more fun than, than getting them. Most of them don't buy it for the first couple of times because they're like, well, getting presents is pretty fun. Um, and, and I'm already seeing this with Lucy, our daughter. She's going to be two in about a month, and, and she already loves money. Now, I don't know that she understands exactly that money can buy things, but she loves coins. So she has these little boxes of, of pennies and nickels, and she loves moving them around and putting them in her purse. And, and, and she's always coming up to me and Rachel and saying, Mo money? She always is asking us for more money. And, and we always just say, well, Lucy, you know, more money, more problems. So um, 
But she's never uh, giving us lots of money. She's always asking for, for, for more money. Um, and so all of us, like this tends to be our, our default position. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Really, Jesus? Because it seems pretty good to receive. Um, but listen to this new research. According to this a study by a Notre Dame sociologist, Christian Smith, he's one of the top sociologists in our country right now, uh, published by Oxford University Press. The study begins this way. Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we move toward flourishing ourselves. And then this is what I think is so fascinating. He says this is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it's a sociological fact. So according to their extensive research, people who regularly practice generosity, and the regular practice is key in this. This is not just sort of you know, tossing a few coins in the Salvation Army kettle at Christmas time, but those who have a practice of generosity in their life regularly, habitually practice generosity. Across the board, they found consistently those people report higher levels of happiness, bodily health, which I just think is fascinating. It actually affects their physiology, their bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. Just based on their research, it seems like the best life is a generous life. And so while we might discount what Jesus says, but according to Oxford University Press, which maybe we'll take their word for it, truly, it really is more blessed to give than to receive. This, this bears itself out in this sociological study. Now, at this point, some of you are thinking, now, of course, a pastor and a church is going to love this kind of research, right? Um, I, I get that. And I, I know that talking about money in church isn't easy. It can be awkward, especially when we're talking about giving money away in the context of church. But, but this conversation ultimately isn't about what we as a church or a staff or as pastors want from you. Uh, it's ultimately about what God and his good design wants for you. And, and ultimately, I think what we all long for, what we, what we all would love to experience is, is greater happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, interest in personal growth. And, and Jesus tells us that the way to those things is a generous life in all dimensions. Yes, with money, but also with, with our time, with our careers, with our opportunities, with our reputations, with our volunteering, with our relationships. I mean, so for example, one of the most generous things you can do is really take time to listen to someone. A friend, a child. I mean, really listen. Give them your full attention. Not thinking about what you're going to say next or how you're going to respond, but just listening. You see, at its core, generosity is the virtue of giving good things to others freely and abundantly. I love that. Generosity is, is the virtue of giving good things to others freely and abundantly. And we've been in this series on neighborly love and talking about how important our work is, how important our collaboration together in that is, um, how integrity and justice play into that. 
that the work that we do, unpaid or paid, really matters deeply to God and to our neighbor. You know, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And so it only makes sense that we end this series with one more essential truth, that the best life is a generous life, that neighborly love is generous love, that there's no way around that, that neighborly love is generous love. And so let's take a closer look at Acts chapter 20. The passage that was read for us a moment ago by Doug, if you don't have a Bible uh, handy in front of you, grab one of the pew Bibles or pull it up on your phone. Um, We're going to be looking at Acts. And if you're kind of navigating your way through the Bible, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts comes after that. It's the the fifth book in. And, And Acts is a book about the start of this amazing thing called the local church. And Luke, as he writes this, he picks up the story of, of Jesus' resurrection and then his, his return to his Father in heaven, and he begins to tell the story of these, these things, these local churches, these organisms, these living things of the local churches being planted and started all over the world. And in Acts chapter 20, we find Luke recording the words of Paul. Paul was a church planter. Um, he was an early leader in the church, and he planted lots of churches and in Acts chapter 20, he's recording, what we get recorded is he's saying goodbye to a church that he had spent three years with, a church that he loved dearly. And again, this is about 25, 30 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. And Paul had spent about three years in Ephesus, starting this church, teaching us where he spent more time um, than just about any of the other churches he started. Usually he would get them started and they move on pretty quickly, but he spent a long time in Ephesus. This was a people who were dear to him. And so he calls the leaders of the church together and says, look, I'm compelled to go back to Jerusalem. I'm being called back to Jerusalem where Jesus was executed. And Paul knew that he was going to face tremendous hostility when he got there. And so this is his farewell speech. He actually says to them, this is the last time you're going to see me. This is not just kind of goodbye until next time. This is, this is it. This is the last time you'll see me. And of all the things that he could have said to these church leaders, this is what he leaves them with. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know how these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give and to receive. Neighborly love is generous love. So if you want to love your neighbor, if you want the the best life, Paul gives us three things here. First, you have to fight covetousness. You have to fight covetousness. Secondly, you have to work hard. And then third, live generously. Live generously. So if you want this, this life, You have to fight covetousness, work hard, and live generously. So the first thing that Paul says about money and generosity is that we have to fight coveting. Look at verse 33 again in Acts chapter 20. Paul uses his own example. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He says, look, I didn't didn't want anyone else's salary. I didn't want their their stuff, their their clothing, their handbags, all of that. I, I didn't want any of that. And coveting is such an interesting sin, isn't it? I mean, first of all, it sounds so archaic, covetousness, <laughs> right? It sounds like sloth. It sounds like this is something from the 1800s, right? This is something we still deal with today, right? 
But it's one we're all guilty of, I think. I mean, it even made it onto sort of God's top 10 list of the Ten Commandments. The 10th the one is about not, not coveting your neighbor's stuff. And at one level, it's something so normal, so easy. We, we do it every day, and we don't even really think about that. But what, what is it really? What, why is it such a big deal? What does it mean to covet? Well, to covet is a consuming desire to get something you don't have. To, point, to the point that if that desire is indulged, that you're going to do something you shouldn't to get it. So, for example, it's okay to want something, but... It's not okay to build your life around getting that thing at all costs. And this is one of those things, sins that I think for a long time I didn't think was really something that I struggled with all that much. But the older I've gotten, the more I've learned my heart, I realized I actually do covet quite a bit. And, and it's not always manifested in coveting people's things, like, oh, I wish I had that house or I wish I had that car. But I realized, like, I start to covet people's abilities, their talents. Like, wow, I wish I was as gifted as a speaker or as an effective as a leader as that person. Coveting opportunities, abilities, gifts, talents. And so, so as a coveter, let me just tell you why I think Paul links coveting and generosity in this text. He does it because they're actually complete opposites. You see, covetousness and generosity, they, they can't exist in your life simultaneously over the long haul. Because if you spend your life wanting stuff that you don't have and building your life around getting stuff that you don't have, you're not going to give away what you do have. You see, I mean, you can't be generous if you're constantly coveting because if your whole life is about getting stuff you don't have, you're, you're never going to be able to give away what you do have. So let me ask a question that, that makes me uncomfortable, and that is, what does money mean to you? What does money mean to you? Because it's different for all of us. I mean, most of us struggle with covetousness in some form, but, but it takes on different forms. It looks different for, for each one of us, doesn't it? Because we don't covet money, like the actual physical coins and paper, right? I mean, I think Lucy does. I think that's it. She doesn't really, like, she just wants the object of money. But most of us don't actually just want stacks of paper and metal in our, in our houses. We want what money can buy. We want what money gives us, what it means to us. Um, so, for example, and Rachel said I could share this, um, there are times when uh, she and I can argue, have discussions about money, right? I'm sure that's something no one else deals with, but just indulge me for a minute. Um, occasionally, Rachel and I will, will have conversations about, about money and how to spend it and how to use it. Because I think that we should save all of the money that we get and, and spend less. And Rachel thinks we should actually like have a house that's warm and, uh, and have a place that people want to come into and, and actually have fun in life. Um, and so while we, we both believe in saving and having fun and a comfortable home, money means slightly different things to us for different reasons. We actually covet for different reasons. Like down, we, we both struggle with money, but the reason at the heart level is different, right? So for Rachel, money is much more of a path to comfort, to, to freedom, to lack of stress, privacy. And, and those aren't bad things, but when we make those things our hope, we make an idol out of pleasure, out of happiness, and it dries up generosity. Now, for me, money is, is all about security. 
It's all about a path to, to, to having a life where I don't have to, to worry. We'll have enough. And during the first service, we were singing a set of songs, and I don't even know why. Like, I wasn't even thinking about the, the sermon, but this just came into my mind. I started thinking about, oh, like, when, I had, when I'm not going to be able to be a pastor forever, at some point I'll have to retire, and are we going to have enough money? I mean, just, on a Sunday morning when I'm preaching about finding my hope in Christ, I'm standing here thinking about that during the worship set. That's where my heart goes. Money's all about security for me. When I make an idol out of that, it, it dries up generosity because I don't feel like I can give away anything because I'm not going to have enough. For others, it might be idols of approval or respect that, that money is about proving that you're successful or having a certain level of, of status that your clothes, your car, your house, they, they, they gain you acceptance with people that matter to you. So look at your bills, your budget, the things you dream about. What does money mean to you? And then look alternatively, as Paul describes what a different way forward looks like. In the book of 1 Timothy, which is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, who is a pastor in the church of Ephesus. So, so Paul leaves, he's going back to Jerusalem, and he puts Timothy in charge in Ephesus. And he writes a letter to Timothy, which we have as the book of 1 Timothy, our Bibles. And he continues to talk about the importance of generosity and how we use our money. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, writing this pastor in Ephesus. But godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who are, want to get rich fall into temptation and trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then this is probably one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. For the love of money, not money, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Fight covetousness. It really is better to give than to get. And then second, Paul leaves them, this with, leaves them with this. He says, work hard. If you want to be generous, yes, you have to fight this, this coveting attitude, this coveting give me heart, but you also have to work hard. And we've said a lot about this over the last few weeks as we've talked about work and, and collaboration and, and starting businesses and working hard and, and, and the goodness of work. And look at what Paul says here in Acts 20. He says, you know, I coveted no one's gold or silver apparel. And then he says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. Paul was a tent maker. He he made tents. He worked hard with his hands and to those who were with me. And he says this, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak. You see, our first job description as human beings in the garden when God created us in his image was to be workers. He gave us the gift of work. Often I think we can see and think about work as the result of the fall Oh man, sin, the world's so messed up, now I have to work. But, but God gave us work in the garden. Now it's corrupted and broken because of the fall. But work is a good thing. <laughs> but in light of the fall, it's toilsome. And I love the word that Paul uses here. He says, it, is, it isn't just the normal word for work. It's hard work, weariness, toil. And I think for some of us in the series, understandably, they've probably thought, well, I could really get behind all this work hard stuff 
if I actually liked my job, right? Or, or if I felt like my job actually meant something. But my job, like, it's painful, it's boring. I don't feel like I'm contributing anywhere. But this is where we have to remember, and Paul reminds us, expect to work hard. We live in a broken world. It's not going to be easy. I mean, it's been said that even people who love their jobs, who wouldn't want to change the role they're in, only really like about 60% of the work that they do. Every job has thorns. Every job has things you don't like. So here's another question. Are you embracing the toil? Not just surviving, not just enduring it, but are you actually embracing the toil of work? Because if you're always looking for things to get easier... Maybe you have this conversation with yourselves that, that once I get through this busy season or maybe once the kids are a little older or once I finish this class or I get that promotion, then I can be happy. If that's your attitude, that you're just looking for that next horizon for, for work to get easier, you're going to end up with a miserable life because work is just hard. And, and, and there's always going to be aspects of work, of life that are toilsome. Thomas Edison, the, the great inventor, um, this is one of my favorite quotes from him. He said, opportunity is missed by most people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. Opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Writer of Ecclesiastes, um, one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, I think it's a book for our time. Um, it's a great book. Sit down and read it at some point, maybe this week. Um, it's not that long, 12 chapters. So good. He says this, There is nothing better for a person than that he or she should eat and drink and find enjoyment in their toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Because God actually uses our work to shape us and to form us. Um, a big part of our job, whether it's a good job, bad job, neutral job, God uses that time, your efforts, to actually form you more like Christ. That he doesn't sort of say, well, oh, he's at work right now. We're not going to be working on forming him in the image of Christ. Oh, she's doing this right now. All of it. Our work is a major part of how God shapes us into his image, into the image of Christ. But not only are we shaped by our work, we are also being equipped to help others, to help the weak. And the word that Paul uses here for the weak specifically refers to those who are economically weak. This isn't just people who are physically sick or poor in their bodies, but actually economic, monetarily weak. And so let me just show you one more quick example of a congregation member who's seeking to live this out. Take a look at this video. A year before I retired from the FBI, I made a conscious decision to, uh, upon retirement, to do mentoring. And during my last few years in New York, that's what I did, mentoring with 100 black men of New York. I saw the need here coming to Kansas City. You know, we can all attest to the challenges that the Kansas City Public School has in providing that leadership to the, to the younger generation. My name is Jerry Rose. I've been a member of Christ Community for a little over a year now. We started a nonprofit organization called Look Up. And what Look Up is all about is mentoring students within the Kansas City Public School District, especially uh, four signature schools. 
We're starting with seventh graders. Our plan is to mentor these young people from seventh grade on throughout their academic life in high school and to follow them throughout their college or professional careers, establishing a network of people that will eventually contribute and become leaders here in Kansas City. I went to New York as a senior executive in the FBI and my goal at the time that I arrived in New York in 2006 was to work a few years in New York and um, retire and get that big corporate security job. So I laid out my plan for myself to God and for his support and, and blessing and uh, simply God said no, I want you to go back and uh, you've talked about it to me all your life, Jerry, that you wanted to mentor and make a change. Well, I'm giving you this opportunity and I want you to go do my will. And here I am in Kansas City. My faith has been one of a struggle and constant questioning, questioning God's role, God's will for me. I'm at peace now with that. And I have that confidence, God-given confidence, to go out and, and do His will. I believe that. There's a culture out there, it's a negative culture, and uh, I want to change that. So that's what I'm devoting my life to. So you see in, in Jerry's story, it's not just about generosity with money only, but with career, with opportunity, right? With, with the, the skills, the gifts that you've been given. You can imagine a senior FBI agent in New York having lots of opportunities um, all over the world for corporate security, um, but saying, no, I, I want to use my abilities, my gifts, uh, on behalf of, of students here in Kansas City. So live generously in order to help the weak, work hard to help the weak. And then finally, uh, we, we see here in this passage is that we have to actually live generously, learn to, to live this life out. We have to fight covetousness, yes, so that our hearts are ready to give. We have to, to work hard so that we have something to give. But then we actually have to do it, the, the hard work of actually giving, of actually being generous, because neighborly love is generous love. And the best life, truly the best life, is a life of generosity. Now remember as I read these words that, that Paul is speaking to the leaders of the church. He's gathered the elders. This isn't the entire church even at this point. He's, he's called together the leaders. He's saying, this is how you need to be leading forward in the congregation. He says, in all of these things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help that we can remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, is more blessed to give than to receive. For Paul, this is simply part of what it means to be the church, to be a follower of Jesus. We help the weak, and we do it together. We do it together. Paul's not just talking to a collection of individuals. He's talking to those who are leading this whole body of followers of Jesus, the local church. And this is important because actually we talk about the complexities of giving, right? All throughout the series, we've, we've talked about, well, how do you actually help without hurting? Um, and all the ways that that can go wrong, 
But I think the result, while it's so good to understand the ways that, that giving and helping can go wrong, it can often leave us paralyzed to say, well, I, I don't want to hurt in my helping, so, but I, how do I help? How do we actually move forward? And this is why it's so important to see the church as, as the primary avenue of generosity. Economist Brian Fickert, who was with us not long ago, he made this remark, and I'd never heard anyone put it this way before, but he said the, the greatest asset in any community is the local church that's already there. The greatest asset in any community is the, the local church that's already, tr- already there. And he says this is true not, not only in, in cities in the United States, but in cities all over the world, in the poorest parts of the world. The greatest asset that that community has is the local church that's already there. Um, even a Harvard economist, Raj Chetty, in an article last month in the Wall Street Journal, contends that one of the most important institutions for economic flourishing is neighborhood churches. And so, friends, we, we believe as a church, and I, and I hope you don't hear this with any kind of arrogance or triumphalism, um, but, but we believe that the local church, as God designed it, when it's, when it's living in and Christ's community isn't there yet, we're not perfect, but when the local church is, is doing all that it's designed to be, is it the ultimate good neighbor that the local church ought to be the very best neighbor, not just us as individuals, but us together collectively as a body, as the church, are the ultimate good neighbor, caring for the weak, proclaiming the good news, welcoming, loving, encouraging, supporting, transforming. This is why we plant churches. This is why we partner with with some of the best gospel-centered community development experts, best practice organizations, both here in our city and around the world, to do this kind of work. We want to live generously together, and the best way to live generously is together, through the church, that we help one another to be able to know how to give and to help without hurting, that we're able to do more together than we could ever do individually. And so the question is, are we learning generosity? Are we learning to be generously? Are we living generously? Yes, with our time and with our talents, but also with our money. And yes, individually, but also with our church family as we partner together. We we believe that the the best understanding of the scriptures leads us to a place where if you're a follower of Jesus, that that God's design for us, his design in our giving is to give 10% of our income to the local church and then to give above and beyond that to other needs we encounter. That's a high bar, isn't it? It's not an insignificant amount of resources. And that's why we have to work so hard at this covetous thing and, and the work hard part. So we're able to be in a posture to do that. I mean, God is doing amazing things in and through his church here in Kansas City and around the world, but, but it costs money, right? I mean, starting new churches costs a lot of money, but it's something that we are absolutely passionate about. You see every week on, on that note sheet that you get, we're passionate about multiplying churches, congregations is the first thing, multiplying disciples, multiplying leaders, but that all takes resources, the the needs of care that we meet in our city and in our congregation, they cost a lot of money. God's work globally that we're involved in, the the fact that our Shawnee campus, which we launched early because of the generosity of of people being eager to go, um, we still don't have a permanent facility or building or space for them yet, so there's needs coming. Our Olathe campus, 
which is in a neighborhood in part of Olathe where there's just homes exploding around it. They're, they're bursting at the seams. They're already doing three services, looking to add a fourth. We, we need to expand our capacity in Olathe as well. And, and it's going to take all of us, and it will take sacrifice. And here's the thing, though. Generosity is sacrifice. Generosity is supposed to hurt. In fact, if it doesn't hurt at some level, it's, it's not really generosity. C.S. Lewis said, you know, we probably can't settle on how much we ought to give, but the measure is this. If our generosities, he says, if our charities don't hamper us in some way, then we're probably giving too little. Lewis says there should be things that we would like to do but can't because our charitable giving prevents us from doing so. If it doesn't hurt, if it doesn't impinge on our life at all, it's not really generosity. And this, is, this means we have to live below our means. We've, we've got to be wise about how we save and spend and how we think about debt. We've, we've got to show our children, the children in our congregation, how to do this, to model it for them. Because the thing is, is everything else in our culture, we live in a culture of consumerism, materialism, everything else, all the air that we breathe as adults and as children points in a different direction. We have to model this. And I realize when I talk about generosity, there are probably two extremes in the room. Um, the, the first extreme is, is those of you who are here and you, you get it. You're saying, amen, Bill, I, I've seen this happen. I, I do it. I love it. You, you understand this tithe and beyond idea, how, how hard work actually leads to, to margin to be generous. And, and you know it's worth it. You know it's difficult, but that you've seen this, how personally, intimately, it really is better to give than to receive. I, I know many of you are in that place. Let me just say, we have such an incredibly generous congregation. By, by every measure, both the number of people in our, in our church across our city who participate in giving and in the amounts that are given. I mean, our, the budget size that we have for the church size that we are is incredible. So thank you for your generosity. Everything good that you see happening in and through Christ's community is a result of that generosity. We're so grateful for that. Thank you. Don't the rest of you want to be a part of that, to jump in with us? So that's the one extreme. The other extreme is this. At best, you think that this guy here is crazy talking about giving away 10% plus of your income. It seems insane. Or at worst, that this is just plain manipulative. Churches always just want my money. And look, I get that. I'm skeptical of pastors too, especially when they're talking about money. So, so I'm with you. But ultimately, again, this is not about what anyone wants from you. It's just not. Because God's going God's to provide for his church. It, it's about what God wants for you in his design. This really is the best life. That it really is the life of, that leads to higher levels of happiness, bodily health, avoidance of depression, all those things that Christian Smith and his colleagues found in their study. Not about what we want from you, but what we want for you. And then I bet there are just a bunch of us somewhere in the middle, curious, maybe a little bit skeptical, maybe just not knowing where to start, feeling overwhelmed at the prospect, saying, I, I, I think I buy this. I, I, I think I believe that this could be true, but I just don't even know where to start. 
Let me just give you a simple next step to start somewhere, anywhere. So maybe you're thinking, Bill, I, I've, got, I've got student loans, I've, I've got credit card debt, and we've, we've got a kid on the way, or like 10%, I can't even imagine that. So, so view that as not a starting place or a finish line, but as a goal. Maybe all you can give is, is 1%, 2%, 3%. Start there. So start somewhere and then seek to increase that over time. Evaluate your budget each year. Think through, is there ways that we can, we can live below our means? Or is there, maybe there's a new source of income. Maybe you got a raise. Maybe uh, you got a new job. There's a way to, to be able to become more generous. So start where you're at and just give whatever you can and then work to increase that. That was really the path that, that I took coming out of school. <laughs> it's like the first time I started to have a regular paycheck, started just to give a little bit and then increasing that, increasing that. Just try it. See if Jesus really meant it. It's better to give than to get. Because ultimately, this is what Jesus himself has done for each of us. He gave everything. He became poor. He suffered and died. Uh, he, again, he wasn't stingy with his blood. One of my favorite lines from Tim Keller is, Jesus just didn't tithe his blood. He, he gave all of it, right? We owe him everything. The bar of generosity goes up in the New Testament. That, that if, if Jesus has given his entire self to us to rescue and save us, then, then we don't owe him just a, a, a few percentage points of our time, our money, that we all that we own belongs to him. Everything is a gift from him. He rose again to give us life, to provide the forgiveness of our sins, which means you and I already have everything we truly need. All those things that we idolize with money, safety, comfort, pleasure, security, all those things that we can try to get through money, we actually have all of those more deeply, more fully, more securely in Jesus that we're actually adopted into his family, what, what more possibly could we want than that, that we have an inheritance that's unshakable, imperishable? Money can't do better. The best life is a generous life, and neighborly love is always generous love. And you might not believe that. <laughs> that's okay. Um, there are definitely times when that covetousness surges in my own heart, and I'm not sure I believe it. But deep down, I'm convinced, and I've seen it in my life, and I've seen it modeled in the lives of so many of you here, that it really is better to give than to receive. If you spend your life trying to get happiness, trying to accumulate things, you'll end up shorthanded. Spend your life trying to give happiness to others, to, to give yourself away as Jesus has given himself for you. It might actually happen. It might really be better to give than to get. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that you have given of yourself, that you are at the core of reality is a God who is outpouring. Before you even made anything, there was a generosity of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of mutual enjoyment and giving, and that overflows as you create a world that even when we rebel against you, your generosity, your grace continues as you rescue us. 
and not only begin to redeem us, but actually that one day you restore everything to an even higher place than it was. You are incredibly generous. Would we find our hope and our security and our identity in you so that we can have open hands to experience the good that you have designed for us? In Jesus' name, by the power of the Spirit, amen.